Welcome everyone to this week's episode for the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology, Last Week in Texas. I'm Wayne Stacy, the Executive Director for BCLT, and we have with us today Michael Smith from Chef and Stone and the author of the famous ED Text blog. So Michael, uh, tell us what we need to know about Texas last week. Well, in the last week since we uh, spoke last, we've actually had a couple of patent trials in Marshall. Um, the first one was a repeat plaintiff. It's a plaintiff who had a trial a few years ago, uh, and he had another case against a group of wireless providers. The, the defendants were AT&T, Sprint, Verizon, and T-Mobile, and it had to do with their use of uh, HTC phones. Um, the jury and Judge Gilstrap's for court found that the uh, claims were valid, but that they were not infringed. And that was after a six-day trial. The other uh, Marshall uh, jury verdict came shortly after that, and that was actually a retrial on damages in, in the Panoptis case. Uh, that case was brought by Panoptis against uh, Apple. And back in April, Judge Gilstrap set aside the original damages verdict in that case, which was $506 million. So, so Michael, conventional wisdom is be careful when you ask for a, a retrial on damages when liability has already been determined. What, what happened here that, that gave somebody the, the boldness to seek a retrial? Well, actually, they didn't. Uh, this came from the court. I mean, of course, Apple, Apple had lost on liability. They had lost on damages, and they asked for that to be set aside and to have a new trial. That wasn't what was granted here. Judge Gilstrap set aside the damages verdict on his own because of his concern after watching the trial that the parties never addressed what a fair and reasonable licensing rate would be. And he said in the order, I realized that both sides had tactical reasons for not bringing this up. But when we got to the end of the case and I could see what the evidence was, I think you were you were missing a key part of the damages analysis when you're talking about patents that are supposed to be essential to technical standards and the jury really didn't have what it needed. So it was Judge Gilstrap that said, I'm not setting aside the liability verdict, but we're gonna have a retrial on damages. Now you raise a very good point. It's very dangerous to have a damages only retrial. I had one of those with Judge Mazant April of this year and it was not fun experience at all on the defense side. Uh, and we have had some other damages retrials in Marshall. And generally speaking, the defendant does works on a damages retrial. So this is a little, little out of the norm that the verdict against Apple dropped from $506 million uh, to $300 million. Well, anything else out of the Eastern District of Texas last week? Well, yeah. Um, Again, going back to the first case I talked about, about the wireless providers case, that case was brought by a plaintiff named Salazar. And in the run-up to that trial, Judge Gilstrap issued uh, findings of fact and conclusions of law as to the validity of the patent case, patent claims in that case. Okay, that's, that's not exactly a normal way to, to go about a validity <laughs> case. How did, the, how did the district court end up issuing? Yeah, that, that was what I was thinking. I'd never seen findings and conclusions on invalidity before, but when you read the opinion, you realize what happened. Back in 2018, Judge Gilstrap was having a patent infringement trial where the plaintiff Salazar had sued defendant HTC claiming it infringed his claims. Now, after the case, picture how this must have happened. After the case was submitted to the jury, 
HGC goes to, to the court and says, okay, we're withdrawing our invalidity counterclaim. Um, and Judge Gilstrap says, okay, that's fine. You, you've now waived your right to have the jury decide that issue. And then after the trial, HGC said, okay, now we want to file a motion to dismiss this invalidity counterclaim without prejudice. The plaintiff cried foul and said, no, you took it away from the jury. That, that should be a dismissal with prejudice. And Judge Gilstrap said, you're both wrong. What you've done is submitted the case to the court, and he ordered the parties to separately submit proposed findings of fact and conclusions of law addressing the validity of that patent, which, again, was, was at issue uh, earlier this year. Now, the reason that's helpful is we get Judge Gilstrap's conclusions of law that go through the relevant legal standards. He talks about factually what you need to provide, uh, legally what you need to provide, so it's something like what you'd see in a J-Mall, but it's, it's an interesting, it's sort of like a binocular view of the invalidity analysis because you've got an experienced trial judge saying, okay, here are the standards and I'm deciding whether the patent's valid or not because you took it away from the jury. So here's the, the process. So it's actually a very interesting opinion. Well, I take it that's not the, uh, the result that anybody um, was looking for here, but uh, an interesting an interesting set of rules that hopefully no one will bump into again for a while. Right, right. We had another interesting case out of the, the district in the past week, and this was, um, I started to call it a J-Mall, but it's really not a J-Mall. In Sherman, uh, this was a motion to strike the plaintiff's election of remedies, but the net effect is similar. I mentioned a, a damages-only trial in Sherman in April, and that's what this is. Um, the plaintiff had gotten a jury verdict in this case back in 2015. The liability was affirmed on appeal, but the Fifth Circuit ordered a damages retrial, and that's what Judge Mazant did in April. Now, at that trial, the plaintiff got an award of 85.9 million, and 64 million of that was in the form of exemplary damages. There's a Texas rule that limits the amount of exemplary damages to twice the amount of economic damages awarded. So in his order, Judge Mazant reduced the exemplary damages from 64 to 17 million and then resolved the party's dispute over whether the plaintiff's recovery under different claims overlapped. And in places he said, no, there's not overlap. And in places he said there was overlap. So again, it's, a, it's an election of remedies case, but it's a lot like a J-Mall in that it's the court looking at what the jury decided and deciding what the final judgment uh, he's going to enter is going to have. Well, there's a, a class action case we normally don't talk about, uh, but Judge Mazant uh, had some interesting rulings in that that patent attorneys may make and learn something from. I, I think so, because some of the issues that came up in that order come up in, in patent litigation a lot. And in that case, the defendant was seeking a couple of things from in a class action. They wanted documents from individual class members, and the judge applied the rule on that and said, okay, this is no longer uh, a class representative. Therefore, the general rule that you don't get in discovery of named plaintiffs who aren't class representatives applied. Okay, not, not a lot of use for that rule outside the, the class action context. But the other was that the defendants were seeking a lot of financial documents from the plaintiff's law firms on the class action issue of their adequacy to serve as class counsel. Now, the, the way this might affect what we do in uh, more of an IP patent tech practice is that 
the court wanted the plaintiff wanted to get I'm sorry, the defendant wanted the plaintiff produce litigation funding arrangements and, and engagement agreements with, with other co-counsel and things like that. Well, the issue about litigation funding is one that comes up pretty frequently in patent cases these days. Well, the court went through and said, this is too intrusive. This is more than you should get. But the interesting thing is the plaintiff didn't say you're not entitled to litigation funding arrangements. They just said, we don't have any. So that's, that's a case that I would go back and look at when I got that dispute over litigation funding, because we're seeing cases going both ways on that. And, and this is one more case where somebody's asked for that and we have a resolution. So it's, it's not exactly something that comes up all the time, but it's something that, that I, I will go back and look at the next time I run into a litigation funding request. Well, the, the Northern District of Texas has been pretty quiet for the last few weeks. Um, anything that we need to know about? Well, um, first of all, we are starting to see a couple more patent cases filed in the Northern District. They may, they may not be a lot below their rate before the patent pilot courts uh, legislation sunsetted of two or three cases a month. But the, but the specific thing we saw this week was Judge Godby issued an attorney's fees award under Section 285 after finding a case exceptional. So why did why did Judge Godby get to the exceptional case on this one? Well, I hate to disappoint people, but this was a default judgment. But but still, so we don't get an analysis of the 285, but what we do get is a little bit of analysis of of um, of the facts in that case and what the what the amounts can be on a 285 award. In that case, the plaintiff sued the defendant, tried to serve them through the Hague Convention, didn't get anywhere, and then got permission from the court to serve the defendant by email, and that eventually resulted in a default judgment. Now, what the court did was approve the plaintiff's request for the Lodestar amount, in that case, for $209,813 for 480.1 billable hours. And it approved hourly rates from $369 to $713 and for paralegals at 284. Now, it found that those rates are reasonable for attorneys with relevant qualifications and experience in Dallas. We don't get a lot of metrics in the 285 field on what amounts are reasonable. So this is a useful one. So if you run into a situation where you have an opportunity to ask for fees, you now have a situation where a judge had, had no issue with this range of fees being requested. So we've got a, a default judgment with an award of attorney's fees. You wanna make any bets on whether the plaintiff ever collects this? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm not, I, I wouldn't be holding my breath on that one. Well, what if we go to the Southern District? Anything new there? Not really anything there. I have read a couple of claim construction orders in the last couple of weeks. They're in oil refinery cases, so there's not anything that really reads on technology quite as much. Uh, you're generally arguing over specific terms having to do with re the refining of oil for marine applications. Uh, nothing specifically in patent or, or tech litigation other than that. Well, as we turn to the Western District, I saw a new standing order uh, from Judge Albright that seemed pretty important. We, we did uh, get a new standing order from him on unopposed motions, and I'll preview next week. We got another standing order this morning, but I'll talk about that next week. The one on unopposed motions, 
uh, dispenses with the need for motion practice in most unopposed extensions. So in patent cases only, the order prospectively grants any request to extend the deadline or amend the scheduling order where the request is unopposed or agreed between the parties, as long as you're not changing the date for a hearing or any final submission to the court. And if you do that, you just file it as a notice, not a motion. And we confirmed yesterday that that also applies to requests for extensions to answer uh, and, or file a, a um, pre-answer motion as well. I saw someone file one yesterday as a notice under this procedure, and they immediately got a notice from the court that reset the answer date for the date that the parties had agreed to. So we know that it, it applies to answer dates too. Now, that, that kind of reflects the different approach that different courts take. In the Eastern District, it's been a tradition going back in some courts to the original CJR, CJRA plan in 1991 that the parties can't modify any court-ordered deadlines without leave of court. You have to certify that in the pretrial order in many courts. Now, not all courts still do that, but it's still a tradition in the patent-heavy parts of the Eastern District. But in the Western District, the tradition is very different. I've had Judge Yackel uh, admonish me a couple of times in scheduling conferences, whatever you do, don't file unopposed motions to move deadlines unless it's a hearing or a trial. I don't need to see that. Y'all are professionals. You can handle that. I don't need to see that. So what Judge Albright is doing is, is essentially reflecting what the practice was previously down there. And that helps parties out a lot because now you don't have to worry about, well, is the court going to grant this extension or not? Because sometimes these requests would go to the bottom of the pile and it could be days or weeks before you found out if your agreed extension was granted. So this takes the uncertainty away. So we can cut a deal with the other side. Okay, yeah, we'll move this date to this. We'll move this date to this. File the notice with the court and then you don't have to worry about whether it's gonna be accepted or not. So, so this is something that will make practice uh, easier in a lot of situations there. Well, Judge Albright grabbed a lot of headlines last week uh, with his quote about blatant forum shopping, uh, which you know, I think that, that language surprised a lot of people. What, what was going on in that case to draw that kind of harsh language? That, that did uh, that did draw a lot of attention, and it's an interesting case. In that case, you had a plaintiff that started the patent infringement litigation about a year and a half ago. They filed a case against a defendant in Delaware. The Delaware judge a few months ago found the patent invalid for claiming patent ineligible subject matter and dismissed the case. The next day, a continuation of that in, invalidated patent issued, and the plaintiff filed suit again, this time in Waco. The defendant then files a deck action in Delaware and the parties filed motions to seeking to transfer each other's cases to the other court. So in Delaware, they're saying, the plaintiff is saying transfer the case here. And in Texas, the defendant is saying transfer the case to Delaware. So here's how that shakes out. On July 30th, the Delaware judge denies the Texas plaintiff's motion to transfer the case to Texas under the first to file rule. Judge Albright's recent opinion then granted the motion to transfer the Waco case to Delaware, saying that judicial economy required transferring the case to Delaware, while, where Judge Connolly had already studied the predecessor patent. Now, here's why Albright talks about blatant forum shopping. He recognizes in the first to file rule that the plaintiff's choice of forum is generally entitled to a certain degree of deference. 
But he said one of the exceptions to that is where the, it's a case of forum shopping. And that's a situation where the court can disregard the plaintiff's forum choice. And here's, here's the interesting part. He says, in the first case, I'm looking at a transcript, and you told the Delaware court that as soon as the new patent issued, you were going to add it to that case. And then after the Delaware judge told you, well, that's unpatentable subject matter, you turned around and you filed it in my court. And, and he said, this is exactly the forum shopping situation that the federal circuit talked about in Khan, and this is where the sentence comes from, and this court does not and will not encourage such blatant form shopping. So in that situation where you represent to the court, we've got other things we're going to bring in, then you get a bad ruling. You're like, oh, wait, no, I'm going to go someplace else. That's, that's a situation where he's expressed a, a belief that at that point, you've kind of made your bed. You need to lie in it. Well, that, that seems fair. I mean, they told one court what they were going to do and went back on that, that statement. So uh, this fits kind of with what Judge Albright's done in the past, doesn't it? Well, it, it does. There was a case back in July where, where under somewhat similar facts, he granted a motion to transfer in another case where the plaintiff had a prior case in California, had lost on a key issue and dropped the case and then filed on a related patent in Texas later. Now, he didn't use this sort of language. He didn't talk about blatant form shopping. And that may have been because it wasn't a first to file case. It was simply a traditional motion to transfer. And he decides that judicial economy is forwarded by having Judge Huff handle this case in uh, California rather than handling it here. So it has happened before, but this is the first time it's been in the first to file context where he had to reach for that forum shopping exception as the basis for why he wasn't going to follow the first to file rule. So this gives us a pretty, pretty good guide that he'll hold you to your word. Um, no, I, I think so. I think that's correct. And we've got um, one other. I, oh, go ahead. Sorry, Michael. Well, I was going to mention, we talked about this inequitable conduct findings and conclusions case from Judge Albright last week. And since we've talked about that, there are a couple more orders that have come out in that case that explain a lot better uh, what was really going on in that case. Well, walk us through what, what happened there, because I think everybody's well, interested in inequitable conduct. It, it, it is. This, this order provides guidance on how you can resolve that issue, and it's got kind of a helpful Easter egg when you get down into it. This comes out of the Fresh Up versus uh, Amazon case, which was tried to a Waco jury back in June, and Amazon got a defense verdict. After the trial, Judge Albright issued findings and conclusions on the inequitable conduct issue, which is what we talked about last week. But what has since happened is he vacated that order after he issued an order granting a motion for partial findings under Rule 52C that there was no inequitable conduct. Now, I bring this up because this gives you a roadmap for how these issues get raised. It, it lays out the type of evidence that Amazon put before the court on the issue of inequitable conduct. Uh, and it shows when it happened. It was while the jury was out deliberating on infringement and invalidity, the court talked to the parties about, okay, how are we going to handle inequitable conduct? And the parties said, okay, here's the information. There's one more deposition you need to look at. Well, do I need to watch this with y'all sitting here? No, judge, you can do that back in chambers. Uh, okay, do we need to have a separate hearing? No, we don't. Okay, well, then I'll get you something on that later. Sometimes there's a separate hearing on that. Sometimes they're not. But this gives you kind of a, a peek at how that can be handled. 
Now, the day after all that happened, the jury returned the verdict finding the plaintiff's patent claims were valid, but not infringed. The next day, the plaintiff filed a motion on for judgment on partial findings on the inequitable conduct issue under 52C. Now, Judge Albright issues the order that lays out the legal standards and the, and the findings of fact later, but what he later does is issue a separate order which sets out the legal standards and then rejects the argument that the motion was untimely because it wasn't made during the bench trial itself. He looks at the issues of materiality. He looks at misrepresentation. He looks at intent to deceive. Now, my guess from last week was correct. He did find that the statement was material to patentability, but he then found that Amazon hadn't proven by clear and convincing evidence that the statement was false. Now, he didn't have to consider intent to deceive after, to deceive after that, but it's helpful when courts go ahead and hit all the issues. He went through that and he said, you also didn't show by clear and convincing evidence that the plaintiff possessed this specific intent to deceive the PTO. So you've got all the information there on how he views inequitable conduct. But there was one other thing that was interesting in here because it may come up in other cases. Down at page 13 of this opinion, Amazon was arguing that the plaintiff had waived uh, privileged as to certain communications between the uh, counsel and the client. He goes through the standards there, and then he notes that the plaintiff actually had not asserted the actual content of the logged communications, and instead had simply relied upon the timing of when people received the communications. And he said that's insufficient to result in a waiver of privilege. So if you're arguing a privilege issue, study that part and see if that helps you uh, uh, argue, well, there is a waiver here because they're relying on the content or judge, no, there's not a waiver here because we were careful to only refer to the timing and not the content. So again, this gives you the arguments on both sides on a waiver of privilege issue that could com come up in future inequitable conduct situations. Well, Michael, that, that runs our time for today. Uh, thank you for walking us through last week. And I think we've got one issue teed up for next week with, uh, <laughs> with the new local, local rules coming out. So I look forward to talking to you next Wednesday. I look forward to it as well. You have a good morning.